Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on December 31st, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. This sermon is about the parable of the persistent widow, sometimes called the parable of the unjust judge. Regardless, this parable is actually about more than just prayer and the need for us to be persistent in prayer. It's about that. But in this sermon, I talk about how this parable is actually connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. How can we be ready for the second coming? Jesus tells us by being persistent in prayer, by praying always and not losing heart. What does all that mean? That's what this sermon is about. The scripture comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, which I'll read now. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In our Wesleyan tradition on New Year's Eve is something called a watch night service. Methodist churches rarely have watch night services anymore, but the idea is that instead of ringing in the new year, you spend the night in prayer, literally keeping watch. And what are you watching for? You are watching for the second coming of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in many places, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour of his return. God's word tells us repeatedly through Jesus in the Gospels and the book of Revelation, through Paul in 1 Thessalonians, through Peter in 2 Peter, that the second coming will occur like a thief in the night. Now, this image has two important truths, and I confess that for most of my life, I've only focused on one of them. I've only considered the aspect of, of the unexpectedness of the image. Jesus said, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The second coming will be unexpected, at least for the vast majority of people living in the world. Many of us have security systems in our homes, not for the sake of people breaking in in broad daylight but for the sake of people who might break in in the middle of the night when we are asleep. So the alarms can go off and we can be alerted to the danger. So when I've considered this thief in the night image in the past, I've always considered the in the night part 
and not the thief part. But for a few moments this morning, I'd like to talk about this first part of the image, this thief part. Have you ever thought about what it means that Jesus compares himself to a thief? That's not a very positive image after all. How will Jesus be like a thief? He'll be like a thief for those people who find their treasure in anything other than God and his kingdom and his glory. For anyone who treasures earthly things above heavenly things. For anyone who treasures temporal things above eternal things. Why? Because everything that isn't of God, everything that isn't of God's kingdom, everything that isn't for God's glory will be destroyed by fire in the end, according to the Apostle Peter. It is passing away. It is being right now consumed by moths and rust, Jesus says. Who are those people, by contrast, for whom Jesus' second coming won't be like a thief? Well, Jesus describes two such people in a parable in Matthew 13. Let me read it quickly. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. If we are like these two people whose ultimate treasure is found in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, nothing else in the world can touch us. Who can, uh, what can anyone in the world do to us? What can anything in the world do to us if our ultimate treasure is found in Christ alone? Last week it came out that, that many actresses in Hollywood are going to the, to, the, uh, to the Golden Globes next week and they're going to be wearing black dresses as a protest against gender inequality in Hollywood, which has allowed Hollywood producers like Harvey Weinstein and actors like Dustin Hoffman and many others to get away with sexual assault or harassment against women for for decades. And one of the victims, uh, one of Weinstein's victims is Rose McGowan, an actress. And she, just last week, she called out one very prominent Academy Award-winning actress who is spearheading this protest effort at the Golden Globes. She's calling her out for hypocrisy. And she, she tweeted last week, Actresses like this one, who who happily worked for the pig monster, referring to Weinstein, are wearing black at the Golden Globes in a silent protest. Your silence is the problem. You'll accept a fake award breathlessly and affect no real change. I despise your hypocrisy. That's harsh. And and I'm not arguing that McGowan is being completely fair, but I am sympathetic with her and the point that she's making. She is pointing out that plenty of powerful people in Hollywood, both men and women, knew what was going on 
that with Weinstein and many others, and they remain silent. It's not like we just discovered last week that powerful people in Hollywood take advantage of young actresses who aspire to be movie stars. No one was protesting back then. They are now. It's hypocritical. And why were so many otherwise good and decent people remaining silent? Because their careers were benefiting from this unjust and evil system. They were winning Oscars and Golden Globes. They were making a lot of money. They were enjoying unprecedented fame. What would I do if I were in the same situation? What would you do? Would we rock the boat? Would we just go along to get along? Would we bite the hand that feeds us? Our Lord, by contrast, is calling us, calling us to to find our food, to find our our sustenance, to find everything we need to survive in him and him alone. And if we do that, we will not find our treasure in money, success, career, popularity, relationships, or anything else, in which case Christ's return will not be like a thief to us. We will welcome him as our greatest treasure the one for whom we've been living our lives and the one to whom we've devoted our lives. And maybe you're thinking, that's all well and good, Pastor Brent, but it sounds like today's scripture is about prayer and you're not even getting around to talking about that yet. What does this discussion have to do with today's scripture? And my answer is everything. It has everything to do with today's scripture. Why do I say that? Because after Jesus tells us this parable in verses one to seven, and it's a parable that begins in verse one, it's, it's told to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus concludes with these very strange words in verse eight. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Huh? Why is Jesus talking all of a sudden about the second coming? Because this is the context in which he tells this parable about the persistent widow. This parable has something to do with the second coming. We know this for sure because we can look back at what Jesus was talking about immediately before today's scripture. And we can see in verse one that today's scripture begins with the word and in other words, everything Jesus says is connected to what he said in the preceding verses. And in chapter 17, at the at the end of the chapter. Jesus warns his disciples about the second coming and he describes what it will be like. And he uses two Old Testament stories to make his point. Listen, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, do I need to point out that the sins 
that led God to destroy the earth with a flood and the sins that led God to destroy Sodom were truly awful. Before the flood, we're told that the Lord saw that that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That sounds really bad. And you can read about the sins of Sodom in Genesis 19. I'm not minimizing the sinfulness that brought God's judgment. But Jesus says... Or he implies that the challenge we face as followers of Christ is far more subtle than abject sinfulness. Notice here in Luke 17 that Jesus doesn't refer to the people's sinful behavior at all. Instead, he refers to eating and drinking, buying and selling, marrying and being given in marriage, planting, harvesting, building. All of these activities in and of themselves are, are good and, and God-ordained. Marriage is good. Working hard to earn a living is good. Planting and harvesting is good. We're supposed to do these things. Yet Jesus is warning us. That there's a danger with these otherwise normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill good things. And the danger is that they can distract us from the reason that we exist. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Of God. Do everything, Paul says, for God's glory. Are we doing everything for God's glory? Is God at the center of our lives? Are we seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first? Is our life's ambition to please God, to love God, to serve God, to bring glory to God? Or Or are we like that seed in the parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the sower that falls among the thorns? The thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And Jesus interprets this parable by saying that this seed sown among the thorns describes people who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in. And choke the world and it proves unfruitful. In other words, people are finding their treasure somewhere outside of God and his kingdom and God's son, Jesus. Have we let the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things distract us from God? As one pastor put it, the biggest danger that we Christians face is not sin per se, The biggest danger is to be desensitized to the eternal by the ever-present temporal. I like that. Have we we become desensitized to the eternal by the ever-present temporal? If so, this kind of attitude, Jesus says, will destroy us. We, we, we won't last long as Christians. We won't make it to the end of our race as Christians. We won't make it to the second coming as Christians. When we die, we won't be ready to face God's judgment as Christians. If this describes us, if we have this attitude. 
It will destroy us eternally, either when Jesus returns or when we die, whichever comes first. Either way, it's game over. Because when we die, guess what? That's, that's the end of the world for us if we're not ready to face the Lord. Will we be ready? Do you hear the warning? Do, do you feel uncomfortable at all? The disciples to whom Jesus is speaking in today's scripture, they heard the warning and they felt uncomfortable and they wanted to know, how can we be ready, Lord, for your second coming? Which again is the same as saying, how will we, how will we be ready to die? And so Jesus told them this parable to answer that question. How can we be ready? So let's talk about the parable briefly. Widows in the first century were in an extremely vulnerable financial position. After their husbands died, sometimes they didn't have children or sons who could support them. Often they were at the mercy of their husband's family, their in-laws. And it was often the case, unfortunately, that the in-laws would not support uh, these widows. And so it's possible that the widow in this parable was going to this judge seeking justice, seeking remedy uh, from her in-laws. We don't know for sure, but we know for sure that she's being mistreated by somebody and she needs justice and she needs it badly. So she goes to this judge And this judge has the power to give her the justice that she seeks. The only problem is he couldn't care less about justice and he couldn't care less about this widow and he couldn't care less about God. He's obviously not worried about dying and facing God in final judgment. But this woman is persistent. Finally, in verses four and five, the judge says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the punchline of the parable is in verse six. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Now, this is a this is a tricky parable. Because if we're not careful, we will imagine that Jesus is saying that God, our father, is like the unjust judge. In fact, Jesus is saying the opposite. God is most assuredly not like the judge. He's the opposite of the unjust judge. God loves us perfectly and completely. He cares about our welfare infinitely more than anyone else. He absolutely wants to help us. After all, we are not some stranger knocking at God's door, bothering God with our prayers, interrupting him with our prayers. We are his elect, as Jesus says in verse seven. That means that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, chosen to be adopted as God's beloved sons and daughters. So, of course, God wants to help us. When we pray elsewhere, Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The point is, if even the unjust judge relents 
and gives, gives this widow what she needs. How much more, how much more will our perfectly loving and gracious Heavenly Father give us what we need when we ask in prayer? Our Father knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than we know ourselves, more than we know ourselves. He will, of course, give us what we need. It'll be his pleasure. But God is like the unjust judge in one sense. He does have the power to give us what we need and what we ask for. Do we believe that God has this power? Because here's the truth. This widow would not have received anything from the judge if she hadn't asked. In the same way, there are things, the Bible says, that God will not do for us, that God will not give us if we don't ask. What does James say? You do not have because you do not ask. Not because God doesn't love you and care about you. Of course he does. But unless you ask for it, God will not give it to you. And that's true for our church, too. What, what blessings might God be waiting to bestow on us at Hampton United Methodist if we would only, if we would only get on our knees and ask God? Maybe one thing that holds us back from praying like we should is this belief that God isn't really going to do anything in response to our prayers. Well, the example of the persistent widow says otherwise. But it begins with the belief that praying really makes a difference in our lives and in our world. If we don't believe that, then, then no wonder prayer gets pushed to the back burner. No wonder prayer can't compete with the demands of work and the demands of family and the demands of sleep and the demands of entertainment and the demands of sports. We say, oh, we don't have time to pray, but somehow we find time to do everything else that we think is important. But we don't pray because for some reason, many of us have gotten in our heads that it's just not that important. Just this week, um, I don't see him here today. Gary is not going back to Nebraska, right? That's right. Joe is shaking his head no. Yes, you know, he texted me um, in the middle of last week and he told me to pray for him because there was a job opportunity available here locally. And if he could only get this job, then he wouldn't have to drive back to Nebraska in, you know, in the cold and be far removed from his family and his church. And he asked me to pray, and I'm sure he asked other people to pray. And so I texted him, I prayed for him, and then I texted him the next morning to find out how it went, whether or not he got this job. And guess what? He did get this job. Now, did God answer my prayer? Did God answer Gary's prayer? Did God answer the prayers of the many people who love Gary who were praying for him? Yes, God did. Now, if you're a skeptic, you could say, well, that's just a coincidence. That would have happened anyway. Well, I guess we'll, I guess we'll never know. 
But I like what uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury back around 1950, uh, William Temple, said about prayer. He said, I find that when I pray, coincidences happen. (laughs) And when I don't pray, coincidences stop happening. So call it a coincidence if you like. I call it Almighty God intervening to answer our prayers. And, And God may not have done that. Think about this. God may not have answered, excuse me, God may not have have enabled Gary to get this job locally had Gary not prayed and had other people not prayed. It's very possible, biblically speaking, that that wouldn't have happened. I want us to be a people who believe in the power of prayer and to live our lives like we really believe it. This is one of the few parables in Scripture in which we're given the interpretation up front in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if we want to be ready for the second coming, what do we need to do? We need to pray always and not lose heart. Now, fast forward to verse eight. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith? On earth, will he find faith? Now, Jesus has just been talking about prayer. He may as well have asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find his people praying the way they should? Because from Jesus' perspective, saving faith in a life that's characterized by constant prayer, prayer that cries out to God day and night, as verse 6 says, these two things go hand in hand. Jesus is warning us that we may not have saving faith if we don't pray like this. If our life isn't committed to prayer, if our life isn't characterized by this kind of prayer, if prayer isn't at the very center of our lives. It's not that praying like this saves us. We're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. But this kind of prayer is a sign that we are saved, that we are among God's elect. Without this kind of prayer, I would just say it's a sign of serious spiritual danger. How could it be otherwise? God's word tells us in verse one to pray always and not lose heart. Elsewhere, we're told to pray without ceasing, to continue steadfastly in prayer, to be constant in prayer, to pray at all times in the spirit. If we are unwilling to pray like this, we are doing nothing less than disobeying our Lord because he tells us in his word repeatedly that this is what we should do. This is a command from God. How can we persist in in a state of rebellion against Christ and yet continue to be Christian? Do you see how serious this is? I love you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. I I believe in you, Jesus. I I follow you, Jesus. Except I'm unwilling to get up a little early. And begin my day with prayer. I'm unwilling to to, to take some time during my lunch hour to pray. Or I'm unwilling to, to, to carve out some time in my schedule in the evening and make prayer the kind of priority that you're telling me it's supposed to be. This is this is incompatible with being a Christian in this season of 
New Year's resolutions in which many of us are resolving to get in better shape physically. Will we be at least as concerned to get in better shape spiritually? Brothers and sisters, it begins with prayer. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on a Sunday morning, I hope that you will feel welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service, and then we have a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us. 